Thank you, Sarah. So, yes, I just acknowledge I do have a tea tray on my lap. I got mocked for this profusely la last la time I preached. Lap trays, we are big fans of lap trays know, in our family. No one else's preachers use it. And I saw it down there and I was like, it's a, it's a go tea. <laughs> Rookie error to not use it. Wonderful table, my little desk. So, yeah, just to acknowledge that. Anyway, so this morning we're looking at um, Ezra chapter 4, as um, Aidy's just uh, read to us. Um, and just to kind of give you a recap, maybe if it's your uh, first time watching uh, and first time you've plugged in, this is just part of a series that we're going through in the, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah's one narrative, one story. And so far, a couple of weeks ago, Michael Vicker kicked us off uh, with chapters one and two, looking at the exiled people. They'd been there for quite a while, exiled and coming back home. Some of them who had never seen home before, uh, some of them remembering past glories and mourning over, over what was lost. And that was chapter one and two. And then moving on to uh, chapter three, which Beth brought us last week, which was all about the priority of worship. The thing that they had been sent back by the king uh, of Persia for to rebuild the temple so that they could pray for him, funnily enough. And now we're on to chapter four, uh, which is our third installment, all on Ezra. Uh, and today's talk is entitled, No Blessing Goes Uncontested. No Blessing Goes Uncontested. And just before we get stuck into the passage itself, uh, I just want to kind of um, recount to you a little uh, meeting we had earlier this week, which kind of um, stimulated a bit of my thinking, which might give us a bit of a context as we go into, um, as we go into the text so we had, um, as a staff team at church, we had uh, a meeting with a couple of people from New Wine who plugged in via Zoom. Uh, and there was one thing that kind of resonated with me at the time uh, as I was thinking about um, preparing this talk, um, which uh, they said um, that they felt that there was a stalling of momentum in this season. Now, we've been in this season for, uh, a, I don't know, nearly a year now. It's quite a long time. And when we first hit the season of the first lockdown, it was kind of panic stations. Okay, what are we going to do? Up in arms, right, let's go at it. You know, lots of uh, momentum, lots of innovation, um, and lots of challenges along the way. And as we've come further and further, there's lots of things that have been contested uh, in our lives whether that might be what church looks like, whether that's what community looks like, or family, or work, or health, or um, any number of things. Lots of things have been contested in this season for us. And, um, and it's kind of led to this kind of fatigue, maybe restlessness that a lot of us, I'm sure, have experienced. I can't be the only one to felt fatigue and restlessness in this season, I've no doubt. Um, and I saw this video. I was going to show you the video, and then I looked at some of the other stuff they produced, and it wasn't all quite as wholesome, so I, th I thought better of it, so I thought I'd describe it to you instead. But it was someone who was, um, I saw it quite a while ago, but it was someone showing the difference in their parenting from 2020 when we first went into lockdown to 2021 <laughs> about now. And to kind of give you the gist of it, the snapshot of 2020 was something along the lines of, okay, kids, so today we're going to do baking, then we're going to do craft, then we're going to build a den together, and then to finish, we're going to snuggle, right? It's kind of like that, okay? So it's, like, it's kind of like, oh, my goodness, the perfect day, right? And then it kind of flits to 2021, and then you get this thing of, okay, there's your iPad, kids. If that runs out of battery, here's your Nintendo Switch. If that runs out of battery, Netflix is on the TV. Those are activities for today. You will enjoy them. Bye-bye now. Off you go. Bye-bye. Right? So I don't know if you resonate with that. Maybe you don't. I don't know. Maybe you've had different challenges. But it did make me chuckle because um, for me, 
I've just had days when I've just struggled to get myself through the day. So for any parent that's had to drag three kids, a dog and a spouse along with you, credit to you. No condemnation. You deserve a medal, right? I think Sarah is probably one of those at times. But it, is, it has been a reality. And for many of us, this kind of momentum that we picked up, watching God do a new thing, actually there are things that have really um, stalled that momentum. And for those of you that have journeyed with us at the Lantern uh, through the season, I don't even remember when we studied this, the, this little book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. This is way back when we first went into lockdown, right? If you haven't read it or you weren't with us then, I recommend it. Good read. Very challenging. Um, but when, when we were in that meeting and they said, oh, momentum has kind of come to a halt. Well, I was thinking, yeah, I remember when we first studied that. And I was thinking the ideas of solitude and silence, Sabbath, simplicity, slowing down, unhurrying my life. And I'm thinking, it hasn't been that long since we looked at that. And where am I at with that? The momentum that I picked up, the space I made to put God in the rightful place that he's supposed to be in my life. First and foremost, him first, everything else coming out of that place. Am I still there? Am I still keeping my eyes fixed on him as we heard in that song? Or is the realities, the fatigue, the restlessness, actually they halting the momentum? And as we go into Ezra and Nehemiah, that's just a little bit of pretext for you. As we go into Ezra and Nehemiah, those guys, they were in a period of exile. They were in a period of this kind of crucible, this smelting pot of, of God saying, right, I'm sending you away, but I'm going to bring you back once you're changed. And when they came back, it was a different story. And for us, it will be similar. You see, if you can imagine, when God's doing a new thing, this season we call Renew, as the, um, this kind of series is called. When we're thinking about renewal, if you can imagine someone birthing a child, there's no point when they get, oh, we're just going to press pause on that. It doesn't work like that. The baby comes out kicking and screaming and ready for life. And so we can't put a pause on the momentum that God is building up on us. We can't, we're not here to just crawl over the line and get back to normality. This is actually God creating a springboard for us to be propelled into the new thing that he's doing. And as we uh, dive into Ezra and Nehemiah, that's what we've got to keep in mind. That we're not reading this just to learn history, but we're reading it to see, God, what do you want to say to us through it? What are the parallels that we can learn from what you've done before and what you're going to do now? Because you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. So let's go into the, packi- uh, the package, the passage. That's just a little bit of pretext to kind of set the scene for the thinking. So um, let's go with Ezra uh, chapter 4, uh, verse 1. Um, so when the enemies, so first of all, we're starting off, okay, there's enemies, okay, it's a big deal. And you think, okay, what are these enemies going to be doing? And then we jump down to verse 3, and it's a bit of a surprise. Well, hang on, these enemies are asking to help you out. Let us help you build, because like you, we seek your God and have been sacrificing to him since the times of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. And you think, okay, that's really strange. You've named them as enemies, and yet all they want to do is help, right? But just for a bit of context, um, if you, uh, there's a little chapter in 2 Kings, okay? So this might be some extra reading if you want a bit of extra context. But in 2 Kings chapter 17, actually you hear about after the Israelites got exiled, actually the Assyrians, they placed some of their people in Samaria and the regions around there to kind of occupy the space. And they even gave them uh, an Israelite priest that, that could show them the practices and the ways of Yahweh so that they could become familiar with it. But they weren't all sold out for Yahweh. So there's this kind of passage. 
And this is 2 Kings chapter 17, 29. Nevertheless, each national group made its own gods in several towns where they settled and set them up in the shrines the people of Samaria had made at the high places. And then the men of Babylon made, and they kind of go through the names of the different gods that they, were, they worshipped, the different idols they made. And there's even one point where they said, and the Sepharvites, if that's how you say it, burned their children in the fire as sacrifices to Adremelech. Like, they were, they were trying to balance following the practices of Yahweh whilst burning their children in the fire. Totally polar opposites. They worshipped the Lord, but they also appointed all sorts of their own people to officiate for them as priests in the shrines at the high places. They worshipped the Lord, but they also served their own gods in accordance with the customs of the nations from which they had been brought. So you see, the, the reason the Israelites say, right, the enemies of, um, of Judah and Benjamin is because they knew from the history, they knew what had replaced them in their homeland. And they knew the reason why they'd gone into exile in the first place. God said, be holy as I am holy. Set yourself apart from the nations around you. Don't follow them. Worship me as the one and only God. They remember where it all went wrong, and they weren't going to do the same again. Let us help you, they said. And the Israelites said, no way, not a chance. And the thing was, you can see that they were right to make that decision because the evidence in the subsequent verses proves it. So if you skip down to uh, verse 6, verse 6 to 23. Now this is almost like, you must want to put this in brackets a little bit, okay? Um, and by that, I mean, if you're reading a narrative or a storybook, whatever, you might get to a bit with brackets and it doesn't really uh, kind of fit with the narrative in the sense it's not part of the story, but it gives you a little bit of extra information about the story. So you could almost read over it. So it's almost like if you get down to the end of uh, chapter five, uh, verse 5, they hired counselors to work against them, frustrate their plans during the entire reigns of the king of Persia, blah, blah, blah. Then you can skip to verse 24 and it's, thus the work on the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill. That's how the narrative flows. So 6 to 23 are just a little bit of added stuff. And something else to note as well, that added point isn't actually in the same time period. They're actually looking back retrospectively. So the things that they write about in those uh, however many verses is actually this is what's to come. The things that are going to be contested for the Israelites where they're trying to rebuild the temple, this is what's to happen. It hasn't happened yet, but be aware this is what's going down. And you know, the wonderful thing is, this is all retrospective with Nehemiah in mind. And we're not there yet, and we'll get there eventually. But we know the, the bigger picture. The end of the story is, it will get rebuilt. It will be restored. God's new thing will not be denied. But for the moment, we're saying, look, the Israelites had so much against them. So much was being contested, rightfully or wrongfully. And so you can see as well, there were... Um, uh, many excuses that the people around them used to try and put um, the, the Israelites um, in a sticky situation. If you go from verse 13 down to 16 uh, of chapter 4, furthermore, the king should know, and they were really kind of trying to butter him up, and he's a long way away at this point as well. Like, you've got to imagine, is the, the distance from Susa, uh, where the Persian king would be, to where Jerusalem is, is about 1,000 miles. So he certainly wasn't going to make a, you know, a, a, a quick trip to knock on the door. It was a long way away. Furthermore, the king should know that if this city is built and its walls are restored, no more taxes, tributes, or duties. So he's like, well, you're going to be short of money that you deserve. Um, now we're under the obligation to the palace, as in like, oh, we only have your best interests at heart. Um, search the archives. In these records, you will find the city is a rebellious and city, a troublesome to the kings. 
So it's just basically saying, check it out. There's, they have a history of dissent. And then he says, that's why this city will be destroyed. Oh, sorry, that's why this city was destroyed. We inform the king that if the city is built and its walls are restored, you will be left with nothing in trans-Euphrates or anything our side of the river. They're throwing different things at this distant king to say, if you let this happen, it will not go well for you. And so the king responds. And it's bear in mind, we, remember, we uh, read in chapter 1 that it was the king, King Cyrus, that sent the Israelites back in the first wave. And so this king is a different king. So that's something important to note. And so the king writes back and says, okay, right, they're going to stop. But there's a really key point. And again, we talk about the hidden hand of God. If you remember when we looked at Esther and um, the hidden hand of God in that, here it's, it, it, kind of, it, it feels similar. Verse 21, so this is the king um, speaking. Now issue an order to these men to stop work so that this city will not be rebuilt until I so order. Until I so order. It's like this little proviso at the end, this little catch that says, but if I want it to happen, then it can. If you remember back when we studied Esther not long ago, there was a real issue because the king of Persia said, okay, I'm going to decree a day when all the Jews will be wiped out. And when he decided to change his mind, he couldn't because the king of Persia's word was law. So the minute he says that city will not be rebuilt, if that's where the full stop comes, the Israelites are stuffed. That's it. Biggest contesting moment ever. And yet, there's just this fine detail which just hinges on the success of God's plan. And it happens time and time again throughout the whole of Scripture. These fine details where the hidden hand of God is at play that means God's plan will not be denied. Things are being contested, but God's got the big picture in hand. So there's a couple of lessons we can learn from that, possibly, from just even those couple of verses at the start about seeing uh, these people around them as the enemies. So first of all, um, sometimes the good can be the enemy of the best. You've got to imagine, and we're taking quite a snapshot of where these, uh, these Israelites are at at this time, but imagine the pretext. Like I said, Susa and, and Persia and different parts of Babylon and Syria and whatever, they were about a thousand miles away from Jerusalem. They've traveled all this way as a tiny remnant of the great people they once were. They've come back to a home that for some of them they've never seen. It's a home that's not really their home, that's already occupied by other people and other lands with other gods and all these things. They've been culturized a little bit differently because many of them have been brought up as Persian or Assyrians, Babylonians, Persians, whatever. And they've come back to this foreign land that they've been ordered to settle in to rebuild this temple. And the one job they've been given, everyone around them has it in against them to stop them. It's a tough gig. Like, we have it hard. Well, totally we have it hard. But these guys, it's not dissimilar. They just have different challenges, but the same level of strain, stress, and level of momentum that's being stalled. And you can imagine, in that scenario, they're tired, they're anxious, fearful of those around them, and you have a grouping of people that come and say, hey, let us help. We can do that for you. We'll do it with you. We love your God. We seek your God. I mean, what is the path of least resistance? Maybe I'd be tempted to say, oh, do you know what? That would be great. I'm tired. I'm done in. In fact, if you just do that, I'm going to go take a nap for five minutes. Whatever, right? But the point is, the path of least resistance is to say, yeah, sure. And yet, they had a different plan 
in mind. They had the discernment and the awareness to know the history, to know what God's plan was and whether they fitted into it. And so they knew whether to say no or yes to those things. And so there's probably a more important question at play in here. Because what is it that made them decide, what is it that drove them to do it on their own rather than allowing those to come in with them? Well, I just want you to draw your attention um, to go back again, thinking the big picture of this narrative, um, into the passage that Mike brought us a couple of weeks ago at the start of Ezra. So we're looking at Ezra chapter 1, verse 5. And again, the king of, uh, king of Persia, Cyrus, he's sending them back. He said, he said what he said in verse 2 to 4. And then this is from verse 5. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. God moved their hearts. It wasn't just a thing of, okay, Cyrus has told us to do it, we should do it. It was our hearts have been moved. They are being driven and directed by God for his purpose, for his big picture plan. And although they couldn't see the end result of Nehemiah coming in the third wave and doing his thing, they knew we are part of a big picture here. God's driving this, it's not us. And actually these people coming in, that is not God's plan. Their hearts aren't driven by God. Their hearts are driven by ulterior motives. If they were driven by God, they wouldn't be sacrificing their kids in the fire. They wouldn't be sacrificing other things in the high places. They're not sold out for God. We know what this looks like because God is with us in this. He's driving this. So I suppose there's a question maybe we need to ask ourselves. What is driving us through this season? Is it ideas of normality? Are we like almost in chapter 3 when we heard about the foundation of the temple was built and half the people were joyful, half the people were, were remorseful? Because the remorseful people, they could remember what the old temple looked like, the old ways. Are we still like, oh, I want to go back to that. I'm just desperate for normality. I just want to crawl across this line and, and be done with this and see the end of it. Maybe it's the path of least resistance. Is that what's driving us? Almost like a passive, just whatever the wind, wherever the wind takes me. I'll see, I'll see myself through that, that way. Or actually, is it God driving us? Is it God that's leading us, that's laid something on our heart, which is giving us the momentum to travel through? And if you're sitting there thinking, it doesn't feel like God's driving me, then ask him, God, move my heart. God, I want my heart to be moved by you rather than anything or anyone else. And what's that going to look like? And I'm sure we'll come back at the end and pray through that, I'm sure. But what is moving our heart right now? Is it God or is it something else? And then, verse 4. So they've, they've asked, oh, can we come and help? The Israelites have said no. And then verse 4. Then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. To make them afraid. And it was really interesting because whenever I think about fear and being afraid, there's, well, there's a couple of things that come to mind. First of all, and this is kind of an additional verse to look up maybe in your own time, if you know the verse of Moses on the mountain, Mount Sinai, as he's going up to collect the, the Ten Commandments, there's this wonderful phrase that I'm always reminded of um, where it's, um, do not be afraid, but fear the Lord your God, or words to those effect. Because he, the people at the bottom of the mountain, they were scared. He was going up to be with God. Sometimes we think fear of God is, to, is a, a kind of respect, and it is. But ultimately, fear 
is the thing that puts distance between us and something. And the fear of God is the thing that draws us close into intimacy with God. I remember when I was at university in my third year of uni. And uh, I lived in the house of someone at the church I was at. Because they asked, they said that I could. I wasn't, <laughs> wasn't just there. But, um, <laughs> but the, the point was, there was a, when there was a change of season, I walked in from uni one day. And I looked at the staircase and there were 20 wasps on the, the staircase. Now, I was genuinely quite fearful of wasps. And they were, they were all dying. They weren't flying around. They were sort of crawling on their last legs. And I didn't realize there's a wasp's nest in the wall, right? They didn't tell me this when I moved in, right? So there's a wasp nest in the wall. And I just kind of, I bit the dust and I got a dustpan and brush. And it took me about half an hour to clear these 20 wasps up because I was petrified, right? And then I thought, oh, glad that's done. Came in the next day from uni, exactly the same, 20 more wasps. I was like, oh, for crying out loud, right? And a couple of, a couple of thoughts went through my head. Okay, I can sleep downstairs for the next six months. That's an option, right? Maybe I could just quit university because actually I can't put that, can't be putting up with this every day. Maybe it's um, uh, just move house. Like gen genuine, genuine thoughts that are going through my head. Um, none of those happened. Eventually, I just had to get over it, right? And actually, I'm not so scared of wasps now because I've kind of I was around them for so long. But the point I'm making is actually fear is the thing that wants to put something between you and what you're fearful of, right? It can be a thing that creates distance. And so when it says, then the peoples around them set to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building, it's like God is moving their heart towards that temple. I want to see that rebuilt. And yet the people around them is, right, we're going to put fear because that's going to distance them from that one thing. But you know what? When it comes to the fear of God, and the fear of people or fear of whatever that is earthly and humanly, actually there's only going to be one winner. When we go back to, again, we saw it last week, bigger picture stuff, uh, chapter 3, verse 3, we see this great verse as they're building the altar. Despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings to it, on, to the Lord, both morning and evening sacrifices, despite the fear of the people around them. They had a fear of God that was so strong, they were drawn so close, they had such intimacy, fear was never going to drive a wedge between that. So much was being contested, and yet the fear of the Lord, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, was the one thing that drove them forward. So just as we come and kind of wrap this up and reflect on what God has to say to us about this, I just, I want you to think, Actually, what are the things in my life that are being contested right now? Where are the things that are driving fear and a wedge between me and where I should be with God? I kind of had kind of a picture of a conveyor belt as I was, I, I drew it out actually, a picture of a conveyor belt this week, uh, almost like a, a, a gen oh, this is showing my age, generation game style conveyor belt and just more and more things being contested that were going, uh, that were being driven along in this conveyor belt one after another. And yet, um, the, and, and you might be able to fill in blanks. I might be able to say a blank thing that's being contested. You might be able to fill that with, yep, that's been contested in my life. That's been contested. Oh, it's just such a strain. And yet, the one thing that couldn't be contested on this conveyor belt, it was too big, too mighty, almost, almost clogged the machine, was the throne of God. And actually, that is the one thing that when God is on the throne, nothing can contest that. Almost anything on earth can be contested, but the throne of heaven cannot be contested. It will not be denied what God has in store for it. And in the same way, when we make God sit on the throne of our lives, that cannot be contested either. 
We see it with the Israelites. They had God on the throne of their lives, driving. He was the driving force and the momentum in their hearts, and they would not be stopped. Do you know when, when it gets to the end of chapter, uh, verse 24, thus the work of the house of the God, bleh, thus the work on the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill until the second year of the reign of uh, Darius, king of Persia. They reckon that was about 15 years. 15 years of having to stop because the king has said so. 15 years of inactivity. And yet, their hearts were still in one place. We're worshiping our God. God has a bigger plan. He's going to renew this. He has something new in store for us. So what is driving our heart? And right now, just like the Israelites, we're coming home. We have a roadmap to come home. And if we make worship the priority, then the result will be God on the throne of our lives. And what's that going to look like? I don't know, but it's going to be new and it's going to be great. And the throne will not be denied. His plans will not be denied. So interestingly, just to finish, I was kind of in this week, it didn't quite feel settled. It felt there was something missing as I was preparing the talk. And just as we were worshiping, I had had this this verse come in, and I thought, right, that's the end of the talk. This is going to be this verse. So I just want to read um, to you from Philippians chapter 3, um, from verse 12. Um, and may this just really help us just say to God, God, drive my heart, give me momentum in this season. So this is uh, Philippians 3.12. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained.